and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Alyssa, before we get started, I have a question for you. I love questions. Okay, so if a lot of COVID spread is asymptomatic and having a fever is a symptom, then what does taking your temperature before you go into a place even do? The only thing is that sometimes your body will give you the temperature before you have other symptoms. Mm -hmm. But for women, here's one thing that's not totally fair, as per usual, is that a lot of times our body temperature elevates during our period. And so it's like if you're going into a place and you're up to like 99 point something, they're like, oh, that's a fever. And you're like, no, it's menses. (laughs) It's lady fever. Lady fever. I've got lady fever. Okay, well, that was informative, but I still think we're probably letting a lot of people into places that could still spread the disease. And it does seem like another another form of security theater in a country that loves security theater. It's like the lowest hanging of fruit. Right. Right. I mean, that's all that it is. And it's true because you can totally be spreading it. I guess it's like you catch the one in three people who have it. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Yeah, I guess it'd it'd be like at an airport if they had a metal detector that could only detect one kind of gun but other kind of gun you could easily get through exactly exactly that is a very good analogy we should include this in the show okay cool (laughs) let's get to the show this week congresswoman ayanna presley and kieran deal joined to tackle the following questions how can joy propel us to november 3rd and beyond now that school's back in session how are we doing And where the hell is our Biden-Harris merch? Come on. All this and more right now. Alyssa, I'm excited to talk about the news this week because we're not going to let the news that we talk about be totally dictated by the Trump family for once. No. So I'm excited to get to the actual bulk of the show that we're doing about teachers, parents, and university students and the jam that they're currently in. But before we get to that, there is some Trump news that is... Kind of too delicious to skip. How could we skip dessert this week? How could we? Let's eat dessert first, okay? Um, Let's do it. Melania Trump's former best friend, I guess news, I didn't realize Melania Trump had friends, let alone best friends. Stephanie Winston Wolkoff wrote a book called Melania and Me, The Rise and Fall of My Friendship with the First Lady, which came out this week. And in it, she revealed some things about the First Lady, like she had a toilet installed for her in the White House before she would move in. Mm. And uh, Alyssa, is there anything surprising about what is coming out about this book? No, I will say that when Melania wore that I don't care do you jacket, I genuinely gave her the benefit of the doubt because I'm like, there's no way she could have done that on purpose. Bitch did it completely on purpose. She wanted attention. Nothing about her surprises us anymore ever, even though we knew that three years ago. Hmm. Weird. It turns out that Melania is a cunt. Wow. She's a cunt. She's a cunt. Big reveal. Look, Sam B got way too much shit for saying what she said about Ivanka, which was also true. Beyond. One funny thing, because I, you know, I like it when the people that I don't like fight each other. Always. Um, Melania and Stephanie, who were like the gruesome twosome, decided that they needed to keep Ivanka from being in um, the inauguration photos of President Trump, and they called it creatively Operation Block Ivanka. <laughs> Why give it a code name? Wordsmiths. <laughs> Why give it a code name? 
code name if you're just going to call it the thing that it does. Like Do Operation like, Operation Warp Speed trying to find a vaccine, not confidence inspiring. <laughs> Operation Speed Up the Science. No, that's not a that's not a thing. Operation Go Faster. No, but it's like why call it Operation the thing that you're going to do? Like when we go try to find intel on the Russians. We don't call it Operation Spy on the Russians. We're not like talking, you know, sending, hey, how's Operation Spy on the Russians going over I mean, truly, can they get like John Grisham or someone involved that's just like better at coming up with things like this? The other thing too, I think about this book and then also the excerpts that have been released of the Sarah Sanders book is like nothing about them ever surprises. And the fact that Sarah wrote about how Donald Trump jokingly, in quotes, told her to take one for the team when Kim Jong-un winked at her. (laughs) And she told that story like it was charming. And it's like, girl, you was dead serious. What's wrong with you? So gross. Disgusting visual. Oh, that is, that's horrible. I, I hate that. I hate that I know that. And I can't believe that, you know... Trees are dying for this. Trees are dying by the, true. by the thousands in order to produce books written by former Trump friends and family and cohorts who really just want another chance to enter polite society after they've already gotten all they can from the Trump family. It's true. And you know what's funny, too, just from a publishing perspective? I'm surprised that some of these book deals aren't, like, straight to digital or straight to paperback because they're, like, this fast burn. The publishing companies make so much more money if they just skip the whole hardback situation. No one wants to carry that around. Yeah. Unless it's, you know someone we like yeah I mean but like a hardcover book is like an object it's an art it it feels like right and reading a hardcover book feels like I'm engaging with this like piece it's an experience yeah exactly but like yeah I don't know I I wouldn't want to be caught reading one of those books on like the train or whatever I used to have to read like Trump land I had to read Anthony Scaramucci's books for my job at the Daily Beast which are just dreadful um, but I read them on a, I bought a Kindle specifically so I ha- didn't have to be seen right. reading them on the train. Taking up precious bag space. I know. Geraldo Rivera's book, that was another one that I was like, I cannot be seen reading this. But anyway, don't read this book. It sounds bad and this woman doesn't really deserve a second chance. But I'm glad she's uh, farting in Melania's elevator on the way out. That, so that's good. <laughs> okay. Alyssa, you know, what's, you know what's about to happen, right? Well, you know this because you got the outline of the show, but I want to really wind up and get our listeners excited. We spend some time talking about people who have disappointed us or continued to be disappointing for their entire 10 years in public life. Melania Trump, Ivanka Trump, for example. The list is long, but there are some people out there who continually impress us and excite us. And we have one of them on the show today. She is somebody that we have like been pod lusting, kind of like, you know, like what is it to really, we've been like thirsty for her to be on the pod since just about the beginning. She is the U.S. representative for Massachusetts 7th District. She's been in office since 2019. She's Representative Ayanna Presley. Representative Presley, first of all, we love you. Um, so you know it's going to be a hard-hitting interview when it starts oh with. <laughs> we love you. Oh um, let's let's get into it. Um, okay, so President Trump has clearly included playing up unrest in cities 
in part of his reelection strategy. Um, he's even gone as far as to imply that Democrats are to blame for escalating violence at protests. How do progressives and Democrats push for police reform in a world where an attempt at pursuing justice is spun as a rush to anarchy by right-wing media and used as an excuse to become violent by law enforcement officials? I mean, well, first, let's just say it's, um, I'm thrilled to be here with all of you. Thank you. I'm big admirers and fans of the two of you, and I'm glad to be with you today. You know, what can I say about Donald Trump? These aren't even dog whistles anymore. They are just um, blaring foghorns, you know, wrapped up in incendiary sound bites and cruel policy and a callous administration. So it's very predictable. This is an old play. And this is the sort of in movement building work, you know, we're used to it. How do we advance policy the way we've always advanced policy as a nation? And that's through movements. You know, a lot of people, when they reflect back on those grainy images, those black and white images of protests and demonstrations in the 1960s, they will define the progress that came out of that solely as the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. But honestly, that movement was the blueprint for every progressive piece of legislation thereafter. So this is how legislation is moved. It's through movement building and uh, social transformation. That is why now things like ending qualified immunity, which is a bill that I introduced with Representative Justin Amash, are now a part of the public discourse that is from uh, organizing and mobilizing and conversations around reimagining our budgets to actually value black lives that has everything to do with the power of movement building and so we have to continue to do that we're in this moment of national reckoning on racial injustice there's a culture shift occurring where people will now very unapologetically affirm that black lives matter but now that has to translate into a power shift that is reflected in who we elect to office the laws that we write and the budgets that we write, those are the only receipts that matter. So if you believe that Black lives matter, then Black representation matters, then Black data matters, then Black homeownership matters, Black entrepreneurialism matters. And so that's how I seek to legislate, is in a very precise way. And I'll, I'll just end here by saying the disproportionate hate, hurt, and harm that has been foisted onto Black Americans for generations was not naturally occurring. It was legislated, it was precise, it was codified in lawmaking. And so the path forward must be one where we are also precise. Reverend Barber, you know, the Poor People's Campaign, someone that I look to, you know, often as just someone I admire tremendously and grateful for his moral clarity and conviction, says we're in a moment of reckoning that demands a third reconstruction. And so that's what we need to be squarely focused on is what does that third reconstruction look like? And how do we enlist everyone from organizers to lawmakers as community builders in that reconstruction of a better, more equitable and just world? Ayana. And I'm calling you Ayana because I've known you since the 90s. Yeah. And that's just how it's going to be. Yeah. Uh, when, you, when you were telling me what's what, let's not forget. Uh, this week, Joe Biden gave a speech and he released an ad where he made the point to clarify that contrary to what the Trump camp is saying about him, he doesn't actually like property destruction that has occurred where some protests have occurred. By doing this, is Biden allowing Trump to control the conversation? Let me just say this. There is an effort to infiltrate and to undermine the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement. 
and the fact that these mobilization efforts have continued, which is constitutional. You know, the right to assemble, uh, to uh, peacefully protest. Dissent is the ultimate patriotism. You know, James Baldwin said, I, I ostensibly, and I'll paraphrase, like, I criticize this country, you know, America, because I love it just that much, you know, and, and she can and must be better. I think we have to be careful to make sure that our movements are not co-opted. The people that I see in community for the four of these movements, they are community builders, not destroyers. And the people that are doing that are infiltrators who want the Black Lives Matter movement to be maligned, to be mischaracterized. But the people doing the work of justice seeking are peacekeepers. You know, and I also think it's important that we not completely rewrite history and sanitize what these movements have looked like in the past. You know, so people will bring up Dr. King and they'll bring up John Lewis. Okay, well, John Lewis was, who, who practiced nonviolent, peaceful protest, almost died on that bridge. And many times thereafter, in fact, many advocates have said, we don't know how John Lewis made it out alive because they always focused on his head. You know, Dr. King practiced nonviolence. He was assassinated. So I say all that to say, we denounce violence. No one endorses violence. And I do think it's important to make that point because violence does beget violence. And it's incumbent upon all of us to denounce that in all of its form, while also confronting and being honest about that which is most violent and pervasive. And that is structural and systemic racism born out of the original sin of this country that we have been living under for 401 years. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's and, I think it's or. We have to hold space, you know, for both things. And we have to acknowledge the gamesmanship on the other side. This is a predictable play. And so it is necessary that we confront it, you know, head on to, um, it's not playing in their hand as much as it is taking away that power, taking away that Mm -hmm. sound bite and that talking point that can so easily be uh, mischaracterized. Let me just close here. You know, Dr. King said, the riot is the language of the unheard. Now, if someone were to say that today, like it's like now the right will co-op Dr. King, was he inciting violence to just state that as an affirmation? A riot is the language of the unheard. He wasn't encouraging rioting or looting. Right. He was saying that people are out here affirming, demanding that their their humanity be seen, you know, that Mm -hmm. we have equal rights. Mm -hmm. So I I just, um, this is a very predictable play, convenient, predictable, don't take the bait. Okay, um, on that note, we're getting toward the final stretch before election day. Uh, So how are you feeling about Democrats' prospects to take the White House and how about the Senate? Yeah, I feel very encouraged. So yesterday was... Uh, my primary and yes. which congratulations thank you thank you very much I mean you know an improbable candidacy uh, discounted underestimated in every way two years ago they had us down in the polls days before the election by 13 points we won by decisive 17 and the reason why I want to start there is because the reason why we we won two years ago is because we did not make assumptions about who desires and deserves a seat at the table of democracy And we were organizing and engaging in a way that was disruptive. And when I say disruptive, I mean innovative, challenging conventional uh, norms and assumptions about what voters to talk to and when and about what. We expanded the electorate. I ran unopposed, but we 
had over 300 volunteers. We were very active in our engagement. It mattered to us because we wanted to make sure that this electorate, this table, which we expanded, that those folks remain engaged, both to complete their census, to vote, to be a part of the community building of this third reconstruction. In our race two years ago, we expanded the Latino vote by 70%. The student vote in some communities by 400%. Wow. 26% of our voters, it was the first time they participated in a primary. We won by 17 points. Yesterday, what I saw on the ground, unprecedented turnout. And we should feel encouraged by that because I think given the draconian uncertain times we find ourselves in and these unprecedented challenges of public health crisis, an economic crisis, you know, uh, bore by that pandemic, and then this national reckoning on racial injustice, persistent income inequality, all these things, maybe folks thought that that would suppress the vote, that people would feel so heavy based upon the gravity of our challenges, but they're actually more emboldened and more motivated. I can't tell you how many poll workers I met who were 16 years old, Mm. 17 years old, eight years old. I said, what are you doing here? And they said, (laughs) I care about our democracy. I care about our community. Most poll workers are retirees. They have underlying conditions. I didn't want them to make themselves vulnerable. I mean, I left feeling hopeful, excited, and confident that people are going to show up. Mm -hmm. And they're going to show up in droves. And, you know, I think having Vice President Biden and Senator Harris um, at the top of the ticket in this way, we're going to see the residual benefit with the opportunity to take back the Senate. Mm -hmm. You know, these these races are really in play. I mean, the fact that Jamie Harrison is in a dead heat with Lindsey Graham. I mean, these are very exciting indicators. You know, so I place my bets on the people. I believe in the power of the people. And they are not allowing themselves to be apathetic or cynical. They are more emboldened. They are more righteous. They are more organized. And we're going to see that. We saw that at the polls yesterday. And I think we're going to continue to see that. And not to mention, you know, look, I always say the squad is more than four members of Congress. It's anyone doing the work of building a more equitable and just world. But we were all considered to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. You know, even though I was really unopposed, there were a lot of efforts to undermine. And we were all, we all decisively won our elections because of, of powerful, decisive mandates from the people of progressive policies and a more equitable and just uh, vision uh, for our, our country. You see that also in the elections of Mondaire Jones mm-hmm. and Jamal Bowman and Cori Bush. So I think these are all very encouraging indicators. So, Ayana, you should know that Aaron and I have decided that we're signing up to be poll workers this year. So we're going to help people who should not be out there. We're going to take over, take some of the load from them. But but when we think about the very limited time we have between now and Election Day, Mm -hmm. what are the concrete things that you are doing between now and then? And what would you advocate that our listeners, whether in battlegrounds or not, be doing to help make sure that we have a positive outcome on Election Day? All right. So here's two tangible things right away. Complete the census. I represent one of the most undercounted districts in the country and one of the most under-resourced and one of the most unequal. Okay, so there's a correlation there. And when you look at the the disproportionate impact of COVID in marginalized communities, that's my district. My district was the hardest hit in this Commonwealth uh, by COVID. And that has everything to do with unequal access to health care, the comorbidities of structural racism and communities that have disproportionately been under resourced, underfunded, divested from and over policed. 
Complete the census. That is a tangible thing you can do right now. More funds for public education, for community development block grants, for affordable housing, language access, social security, Medicare, Section 8, Head Start. Complete the census, okay? Secondly, vote. My mother always told me being a super voter was our superpower. Hmm. You know, so vote. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to offer something that you wouldn't expect me to say. Uh, outside the box of be a poll worker, you know, organize your block, write postcards, all those things. Everyone has a role to play in the movement. I want to ask you to intentionally inform joy mm. because joy mm. is a necessary act of resistance. And so whatever that looks like for you, look, this we find ourselves in really challenging times. You know, these folks are trying to roll back the hands of time. All the gains we've made, they are coming for our civil liberties, for our civil rights, for the livability of our planet, for our democracy. When you see what's happening with the United States Postal Service and, and other blatant voter suppression intimidation tactics, don't give them your joy to. Mm. And so I really need you to be intentional about informing joy. And so what does that look like for me? Well, the other night I did log on to the versus challenge between Brandy and Monica. That was informing joy for me. You know, those are the anthems and the soundtrack of my life, you know? So even just little things like that, baking with my daughter, you know, even though COVID fluff is real, I don't need to be baking anything. But, you know, just being intentional about informing joy. And I want to say that I don't want you to inform joy just so that you can strengthen yourself to do the utility work of democracy and movement building. Like inform joy just because like your wholeness and your wellness and your peace matters, mm -hmm. period. Mm -hmm. That's that's a very good idea. And it's an important reminder, especially when it's so easy to get down and have it be almost like a, you know, a roast of reality every single day. Um, so as schools are resuming classes, sometimes against the advice of public health officials, teachers and school employees are going to be put in a dangerous position in some cases. Um, healthcare workers, farm workers, grocery store workers, other essential employees, they've all been put in harm's way by a patchwork chaotic reopening during COVID. So in your opinion, what needs to change to assure that these workers are protected and fairly compensated for the risks that they're being forced to take? You know, sometimes people will say to me, you know, you guys are moving all these bills out of the house, but why does it matter if they sit on the desk of Mitch McConnell? Listen, I'm not going to abdicate my responsibility to lead and to be responsive to the needs of my constituents. You know, I have spoken to so many educators, educators who, by the way, let's applaud the fact that they have been so nimble in the face of this pandemic, immediately transitioning to online learning, holding space for and trying to support their students who are ELL. Uh, you know, special needs, living with trauma, which all these kids are right now uh, because of this pandemic, because of the fear of deportation, because of the threat of displacement and eviction, because of food insecurity. Our teachers, you know, my forever president, Barack Obama, called the nation builders. I never got to ask them why that is. I think it is because they pour into people, little people who go on to build up our world. Yeah. And they have been an extraordinary. And even before the pandemic, we've asked too much of our educators. Mm -hmm. We don't invest in social emotional wellness supports. We ask them to be school nurses, social workers, psychotherapists, instead of making those investments in wraparound supports. And now we're asking them to be caseworkers. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if we could just report the HEROES Act out of the Senate, get it to the floor for a vote, you know, we have been, that was a massive infusion of federal funds that are necessary for the schools to be able to reopen safely. 
as well as funds necessary for a national testing strategy and contact tracing, which my callous, disconnected Republican colleagues across the aisle don't even believe in. They think it's a hoax. Mm -hmm. The HEROES Act, we need to move on that. And we need our states to stand in the gap of the failures of uh, the Trump administration to make decisions that are informed by science and data. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really it. And so until we get this pandemic under control, we have to have remote learning. And so then we have to then move relief packages that will support that online learning. And if they're going to be bottlenecked in the Senate, then we need governors to step up and mayors to step up. You guys, there's so many deep issues here. Like if we give every kid a Chromebook, but they don't have a hotspot, what does it matter? Right. Mm -hmm. If we give them a Chromebook and they have a hotspot and both their parents are essential workers and they're helping to raise younger siblings or managing trauma. I mean, there's so much here deep inequities and disparities that have only been exacerbated in the midst of this pandemic. So our decisions to reopen have to be driven and informed um, by science and data. We are asking our teachers already to be social workers and school nurses because we don't make that investment. And now we're asking them to be caseworkers and in some instances martyrs Mm -hmm. because of where we have seen surges and clusters and outbreaks. Like we can't afford to get this wrong. I have been so distressed by governors that have rushed to reopen. The callous disregard for the threat of human life is stunning. Mm -hmm. It's just stunning. It's stunning. As we said before, you won your primary. The entire squad has won their primaries. We had Congresswoman Omar on a couple weeks ago, and we had an interesting chat, and we were curious about your take on this too. Okay. Why is right-wing media and so many of the politicians that love them, why are they so obsessed with you guys? That is because they have weaponized the things that are actually the most distinctive, resonant, beautiful, and unifying about all of us. You know, we didn't know each other before. Right. Alex and I had met because we were the only two that were challenging incumbents and then unseated them. So we had had, we had, were walking a very unique path And so we could speak in the shorthand with each other about those unique um, joys and pains of that journey. But Rashida Ilhan and I had never met. And then we were at a Congressional Progressive Caucus freshman orientation. We did an interview together. We took a picture together. And that picture went viral. Now, why is that? Hmm. That it was a selfie, right? And then Alex just put hashtag squad goals. And then that picture went viral. And then people said, we're the squad. Now, why would that picture go viral? Because people saw themselves reflected. It was the power of representation. Donald Trump weaponizes that. And I think how we show up in the world, the reason why we won is because we are authentic and unapologetic truth tellers. And we center our lived experiences in our work and the lived experiences of the marginalized. So even though we didn't know each other, we had an immediate kinship because of the shared beauty and pain of being women of color. And they weaponized that. Listen, I, first, we're in September. This is Alopecia Awareness Month. So I just want to say a shout out to all those living, the 7 million Americans living with alopecia like myself. When I show up in a room, people are uncomfortable just because of how I show up in the world. A a black, bald woman 
it challenges and defies conventional standards and norms of what is acceptable, what is professional, what is beautiful, what is feminine. And so we just upset people just for how we show up. And then never mind that we are uh, seeking to legislate in a way that is intersectional, Mm -hmm. that is disruptive, that is honest about the injustice of the world. So I think it's a confluence of of all of those things. Mm Like if you're going to show up and people are already mad at you, you might as well give them an even better reason to get mad at you. <laughs> give them a reason. You know, that's, that's right. Look, I won't pretend that, look, guys, we, you know, we're subject to a lot of very credible threats mm-hmm. and hurtful vitriol and rhetoric. I do think we need to talk more about what women and women influencers and women in politics experience online. Mm-hmm. It is next level. Mm-hmm. But... I think we continue to persist because we are emboldened by the people mm-hmm. and by the mandate that we have by the people who insist that we show up in the world exactly as we are. That's why they voted for us. So even when it's when we're tempted to sort of shrink, you know, and to hide that we can boss up <laughs> because of the mandate of the people and, and the constituents that we represent. Boss up. Indeed. Uh, Representative Presley, thank you so much for joining us. We've wanted you on the show since the very beginning, and we finally did it. Oh, my goodness. Thank Thank you so much. I appreciate you all immensely. Thank you. That was United States Representative Ayanna Presley. She represents Massachusetts' 7th District, and she's just the best. Uh, We are so excited we got to talk to her. Now let's move on to a topic that we uh, have told you was coming. We reached out to you a couple weeks ago asking for teachers, educators, and people affected by the current state of education to let us know what's going on. And so we're going to hear from a couple teachers, a parent, and a college student about how the kind of haphazard COVID reopening plan has affected all of them. And Alyssa, I was doing some research. I feel like you right now. I was doing some research. Just doing some research. Um, just do it a little bit of research. I and I found that there are 3.2 million teachers in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and 6.6 million people who work in schools. Of the teachers, 77 percent of them are women. Mm. Of teachers, 94 percent of them spend their own money to buy their own class supplies, because what we're the way schools are funded is egregious. There are 56.4 million kids who are school-aged, so like between elementary and through high school. Isn't that crazy? That's a lot. That's a lot. I just had to think about that in my head. They could beat us if they formed an army. They could win. Imagine if they could vote. I know. I mean, Donald Trump wouldn't be the president because kids know. Um, Kids know. Kids know. And uh, there are 20 million people who are enrolled in college. So today we're just kind of talking about the state of election in a time of just complete government inaction on COVID and how people are affected by it. And because we're dealing with so many people here, just like tens of millions of people, we're not going to be able to cover every possible experience. Um, A lot of you reached out to us. A lot of you told us what you were going through. A lot of you told us what the experience had been as parents, as teachers, as university students. And we had a couple people reach out who were in more than one category, like teachers who had kids who are going to be in school and, you know, teachers who are married to teachers. So we picked out a few of the voice memos that you guys sent us, and uh, we're going to listen to them 
right now. So the first one we're going to hear is from a teacher. Hi, Hysteria. I'm an elementary school special education teacher in a rural school system in Tennessee. I was very nervous and in disbelief that we started school just two weeks after I lost my grandfather to COVID-19 in the same town where I teach. Although it was risky, I reached out to my superintendent about my experiences and concerns, but that changed nothing about the school system's approach to reopening. Since schools have reopened here, social distancing has gone out the window. Returning to school was a shock to my system after taking social distancing so seriously since March. Sometimes I feel like I lost my mind and just imagined the whole pandemic. Tennessee has no mask mandate. Public schools are playing contact sports, and my school system also has no mask requirement. There's not enough room in schools or buses to space children six feet apart. And whenever we have a positive case, only the students who sit within six feet of that child are quarantined. There are wide-ranging inconsistencies between local school systems in neighboring counties and towns, with each having different policies and requirements. There are some kids doing remote learning at home while their parents are outside the home and away at work. I've already experienced my own elementary-aged children having to quarantine at home while I report to work because my district has designated teachers as essential workers, and we've been told that we will not receive full sick pay for staying home with quarantining family members. Classroom teachers in my district are also responsible for preparing at-home learning assignments for any of our students who are in quarantine or who are choosing temporary at-home learning. For example, I Zoom a student in for my daily reading classes. It's not ideal, but right now it's the best I can do. Overall, this is a very complex situation. It feels so good to be physically at school, but there's an ever-present high level of stress and uncertainty. My concerns for my students include healthcare access and health outcomes for their family members. Many of my students live with grandparents, many of whom themselves have underlying health conditions. Unfortunately, even if my school system should switch to remote learning, many of my students will be confined to their often unsuitable homes without adequate nutrition, and without access to technology or internet to continue their learning. So far, we've only had a few confirmed cases at school. Educators are not healthcare workers, so these are exceptionally challenging and confusing times for us. But we are problem solvers, so we carry on, always building the airplane in midair. Thank you for highlighting these issues. Students deserve all the best, and it's my great honor to be their teacher. Wow, teachers are <laughs> this lady's awesome. Um, she's awesome. Yeah, she rules, and she's exposed a lot of problems that I think the pandemic itself has exposed. Like there are systems that we rely on every day in this country that were already hanging on by a thread that were unsustainable, and now they're all being stressed at the same time. Like. You know, she's a parent and a teacher, so she's pulling double duty here. That's not a sustainable thing to expect of teachers who are parents or of parents. And it also sort of exposes a total lack of empathy in the way that these policies are being formed. Like, unbelievable that her school administrators wouldn't consider her situation having lost a grandparent to COVID. It just it just seems so like cold, lacking empathy and and like anti-family at the same time. And I'm just curious, like for what, you know, what's the end game here? Well, you know, I think that one thing that was so interesting about her message to us is that 
it's what everyone said was going to happen. You know, like why did it, it took it took it to actually happen, I guess, for people to maybe start believing like everything she said belies the need for a national strategy. Like she says that the different districts have different and different towns and counties have different like strategies. There's no mask mandate. So these people who are going into the school are nothing but at risk because everyone in their home is abiding something different because they have no direction because Donald Trump also threatened. I mean, like so much has happened that we forget about. Like, let us not forget Donald Trump was like, if you don't open your school, we're going to try and take all your money away from you. You're not going to get funding if you're not in person. So it's like, while I do think that her principal has a lack of empathy, we also don't know what constraints they're up against, right? Mm -hmm. Like maybe they're just trying to get the money so that they can feed the kids who wouldn't otherwise have that resource. So I just think that it's really sad that we needed to see this all play out like IRL when like any number of reasonably smart people and or experts said this was going to happen. Yeah, we were told the stove is hot. We put our hand on the hot stove and now we have a burned hand. It's like the worst of And no first aid cream. And no first aid cream. We're like, the stove won't burn us. It'll be fine. And and it's just... It just sucks that people like this woman who sounds like an amazing person, but there are amazing people in every single school doing this sort of work. It just, it sucks that, that she's been put in this position. It just, it just sounds really horrible. Yeah. And it has become her responsibility to make it all work and not that of the federal government or the state or anybody who should have been in charge in making this better. Now it's on all of these individual people to like fucking make it work. Mm-hmm. Well, do you want to hear from another teacher? Let's do it. Okay. Hi, Hysteria. I am a first grade teacher in a district that is 100% remote for the time being, and teachers aren't being required to be on campus or teach from there, but we are depending on teachers and staff volunteering to be on campus to get computers and materials and hotspots to the students and families that need them. So I was volunteering for that. Um, at the beginning of the year. The second day I was there, somebody else who was helping didn't have any symptoms, but later developed them and tested positive. And so because we were in the same room together in the auditorium for a prolonged period of time, uh, it counts as a prolonged exposure. And I need to quarantine for 14 days and get a negative test and um, track my symptoms before I'm allowed back on campus. And then every other teacher who was on campus, but not exposed for a long time to this person um, had to be notified that it happened. So I luckily got a negative test back already um, and I'm very grateful that it happened without students on campus because obviously whatever students that person had been in a room with for more than 15 minutes, those students would all have to quarantine. Their families would be recommended to quarantine too. If I had then tested positive, any students who I had been in a room for more than 15 minutes with would have to quarantine. If I quarantined and didn't test positive, then my students could stay, but we'd have to find a substitute from somewhere to take over my classroom. Um, And then, of course, if the whole class had to quarantine, then we'd be rushing back into remote learning in a very chaotic way like we did last spring instead of the way we're doing it now where we had lots of planning time and it can be more sustainable and intentional. So I'm very grateful that it happened with no students on campus. 
Uh, but even so, it just shows how the best laid plans really can fall apart quickly in this situation because, um, you know, we planned for the fewest number of staff to be on campus as possible. We kept ourselves far away. We got things to parents in a socially distanced way. Um, but now we can't get any computers and materials out to parents for a while because the staff available to do that are all quarantining. Even with trying to put precautions in place, it fell apart pretty quickly. And it was very lucky that everyone exposed tested negative. Um, so that is my COVID exposure story for the start of school. And again, I'm very grateful that it's not a story of any students or families being exposed. So here is almost the opposite example of the Tennessee teacher, right? They went remote, they tried to do everything, adhere to the guidelines. And guess what? It still fell apart because fucking COVID is real. (laughs) And what this poor teacher described is like, you know the beginning of the movie Goodwill Hunting, where he's squiggling all the the math problems and the logic problems on the board, and he's like solving them. Will Hunting couldn't solve the logic problem that is happening with all of these poor teachers. It's like if then what so? And the the thing about the teachers and the common denominator of the two ladies who have called in to talk to us. Fucking try to make it happen. They are doing their best. They are the Nancy Drews of this situation and trying to be like, and the fact that this teacher was like, you know, upside, this all happened, but no students were exposed. But her point that imagine if students had been in the school, like there is no way that there wouldn't have been a massive outbreak, which again, if we go back in time and just imagine if there had been a mandated a mask mandate, like how things might be different. But right now, look at what's happening in Iowa. These stories are coming out. The stories that we are finding from these folks who are calling into us are not unique. They are vivid, but they are not unique. Mm -hmm. And yet schools like Iowa State are still thinking about opening up the fucking stadium for football. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, it's, it's... Someone call Will Hunting. You know, it sort of reminds me of that scene in Arrested Development when Tobias and Lindsay are considering having an open marriage. Tobias suggests that they can just explore sexually. And Lindsay says, does it work? And Tobias says, oh, almost certainly. People delude themselves into thinking it might work for them. But it might work for us. <laughs> exactly. And like, that's Bingo. The lo- yeah, that's the logic that keeps happening here. It's the second teacher that we heard from described a school that sounded like it handled the situation as responsibly as it possibly could. Yep. To that school's credit, it sounds like they did everything they possibly could. And still, like there is no perfect system in a time of pandemic from a pathogen that we do not fully understand. And so we cannot fully control. It also made me think, you know, she was talking about volunteering to help deliver computer supplies and how um, during the pandemic, you know, teachers are already put upon a lot. You know, teachers are supposed to be educators primarily. That's why they go to college. They don't go to college to learn how to babysit. But this whole pandemic has taught me that there are so many people that view teachers as merely elevated babysitters, which is so not what they actually do. And also during the pandemic, we've we've asked them to do other things like the first teacher from Tennessee mentioned, you know, healthcare workers. We're asking them to perform the duties of healthcare workers. We're asking them to perform the duties of delivery workers. We're asking them to essentially be social workers. And 
They don't get paid enough to do what they're supposed to be doing, much less all of these other things that we're asking them to do without an adequate plan to keep them safe. I do want to commend the Second Teachers School, though, for trying in the most, like, yes, pro-social possible way to, to get done what they needed to get done. Um, and I really hope that the person who was exposed um, has, has gotten better in that yeah. school. Um, okay, do you want to hear from... Let's hear from a parent. Hey, to the amazing ladies of Hysteria. I'm Kristen from Sacramento. I'm a mom of a sixth grader and a ninth grader, and I'm grateful that our school district has the sense to do full distance learning right now. I'm really hoping they'll continue it at least through the winter because as a single mom who doesn't make a lot of money and has some risk factors, I can't afford to have my kids share COVID with me. We've been distance learning for a couple of weeks now, and it can get a little chaotic. I'm lucky because I can work from home and be around for my kids when they're struggling with something. But honestly, kids are really flexible in general, and I'm watching them adapt to this way of learning. My son's teacher told me that the kids are providing tech support to each other, and I'm seeing the teachers trying really hard to be understanding and supportive. So it feels like, at least where I am, that this experience of distance learning is bringing us together. And no, it's not ideal, but I'd rather do this than get COVID and not be able to work or take care of my kids. First of all, this woman has a great radio voice. Um, Unbelievable. (laughs) Unbelievable. Like buttery smooth. I mean, I I texted you the minute I heard it. (laughs) I was like, she sounds like Terry Gross. Um, But the second thing is, you know, I think that she really presents a glass half full scenario. I mean, she does have... Like she said, she has risk factors and she's raising her kids by herself, which is obviously just really hard. But I like the glass half full of like the kids providing tech support to each other. Like I think I think that's really kind of a little sweet moment in this tangle of badness. I bet you that those little kids are doing a lot more than telling each other to all control delete too. I bet they know what they're actually doing. Oh, yeah. By the, like I said, the kids could form an army and take over America, and we could do very little to stop them because they know how to work technology better than most adults. Right. And you know the thing about uh, Kristen from Sacramento is that I feel like stories like hers are manipulated by the Trumpians of the world to be like, see, it's fine. Everyone's adapting when really she's making chicken salad out of chicken shit, right? Like mm-hmm. fucking being maudlin about what she's up against isn't going to help her get up and over it. And so Mm -hmm. she's like, you know what? Like you said, here's the fucking glass half full. We're together. It's not the worst thing that's ever happened. And I'm not sick. And I can't be sick because then I can't take care of my kids. And it's like, that is the actual point. I think that we all need to highlight Mm -hmm. that this is all in service of her not getting sick so her kids can eat. Mm -hmm. And so right now she's not sick and her kids are eating and she's taking care of them. And it feels not catastrophic. And so I think that that's sort of like what is happening to her is not currently catastrophic. It doesn't mean that it's right or good or successful. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think that's such an important distinction. Like being able to make the best of a bad situation doesn't mean that the situation is good. Right. It just means that the person dealing with it is tough. But tough people, just because they're tough, 
shouldn't be exposed to things that test them just for the shit of it, you know? Like Right. And and why should Kristen from Sacramento have to work harder than our president at this problem? Yeah. I think that's a great question. That's the million dollar question. Okay. We have one more from a college student. Um let's hear from her. Hi ladies. I am a student at the University of Cincinnati in the College of Design, Architecture, Art and Planning, also known as DAP. This summer, I took 15 credit hours of remote courses, and let me tell you, it is so hard to have design courses online. For in-person courses, you have unfettered access to your professor and your peers to receive feedback almost instantly, rather than setting up a WebEx call whenever you want to discuss your work. The lack of a classroom setting has been difficult on all of us, and our grades have suffered slightly because of it. With that said, I appreciate DAP's decision to stay remote through the current semester as it shows they genuinely care about the health of their students and professors, especially adjunct professors who do not receive health insurance. Lastly, UC is fairly well known for its co-op program, which alternates semesters of schooling with semesters of mostly paid internships. Obviously, there are not a lot of internships to be had at the moment, and aside from this being a valuable work experience, these internships are also a graduation requirement. UC is making some concessions about those requirements for the time being, but I am concerned that we will be feeling the effects of this pandemic for years to come in terms of job opportunities. Thanks for everything you do. Have a great day. So, again... She's taking the glass half full approach. It's not ideal, but it is better than X, Y, Z, right? It's better than if it was fully in person and they'd be getting sick. The thing to think that I think about with so many of the college students is they're still paying for this. And most of them aren't getting like a massive discount, if any discount, for these credit hours that they are doing for arguably a fraction of the value of what it would have been under like normal circumstances. Um, but they're still trying to muscle through and it's, it's the same, like they're doing the best they can and they have a good attitude. I did not realize adjunct professors do not get health insurance. That seems oh, terrible. Yeah. It's really Whoa. egregious. It is like a, a massive institutionalized human rights violation. They get paid without question. Not, like when I heard that, I was like, Oh my God. But yeah, you know, I mean, again, trying to make chicken salad out of chicken shit and hope that at the end, I mean, Aaron, remember at the very beginning of COVID, they were graduating doctors from medical school without taking their final exams and stuff just to get them into the workforce. And so again, it's, it's incumbent upon these people who did not create this pandemic, who are trying to make this pandemic better, to literally do the work that the states and government have failed to do. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing that really struck me with this caller is that a lot of the news reports about college students, colleges reopening, having it go sour, kind of focus in a finger wagging way on those college kids. They're going out to party. They're partying. All they want to do is party. And it's their fault because they're partying. No, it is the college's fault for inviting all of these people without fully developed prefrontal cortexes governing decision making to college when they are all around each other. They're like, what do you think would happen? Second of all, I don't think that that oversimplification, college students just want to go party. They're just a bunch of hedonistic party monsters. That's not true either. Like this college student was so much more concerned about the classroom experience than she was about the college experience of like being on campus and, you know, meeting people at parties and, you know, making out or whatever. Like a lot of college kids are there 
to learn. <laughs> um, as, right. And, and I find it kind of uh, reductive and insulting when the news media falls for the college administration's line that the reason that there are outbreaks happening is because of the student's fault. The reason that there are outbreaks happening is because there are greedy-ass college administrators who wanted to cash their tuition checks rather than taking care of their students. And uh, like my, my alma mater is uh, Notre Dame has oh, yeah. been in the headlines for just totally fumbling, if I may use a football pun. But I'm uh, totally fumbling the uh, response to it. And it's really just because they wanted people to come on campus because they have somehow successfully wrapped up the financial interests of a few wealthy administrators into the this like emotional pitch that they give yep. to students and it fucking sucks. And, you know, the, the final thing I want to say about the, you know, this, this caller and other college students who we had who reached out to us is that I feel deeply worried. Like when I read about their job prospects, it is so fucking unfair that they have to go into the world when it's like this as a older millennial, my entire adulthood has been characterized by catastrophes that, just kind of wiped the prospects board clean and we all had to start over. And it just sucks. Like I have a friend who's in business school at Notre Dame right now and she's, you know, everything's up in the air. And mm-hmm. I'm truly amazed at the college kids that, or, you know, and graduate students who are able to keep moving forward as best they can when stuff is so uncertain. Mm-hmm. Also, like, design is a cool-ass discipline, so... Totally. And also seems really hard to do by yourself remote. Oh, my God. In all fairness. But I bet that woman's apartment is uh, impeccably decorated. Design I bet that's Designers true. always have just, like, the coolest apartments. Okay. Do you want to do a quick toast and roast? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Um, I could, I could start with a roast. Let's start with a roast. I'm hungry. I want a roast. Okay. <laughs> Um, this week I learned how to pronounce the name Novak Djokovic because I have never watched a tennis match in my life. I don't know how it works and I don't understand it. It's just one of those things. I have nothing against it. I just didn't ever learn about it. And now I'm sort of like, why? It's like downhill skiing. I've also never been downhill skiing. I'm not going to now because why? Made it this far. Novak Djokovic, apparently very good at tennis, apparently very bad at being a person. This week, he announced he had a plan to form a players union for tennis players, but it would be only open to men. And part of that is because he believes that male tennis players have more of a right to make more money than women who play tennis, Um, which seems poorly uh, thought out. And, you know, after I learned about this guy, I was like, wow, this is a... Captain Bad Ideas, and I found out that over the last year, he's really been on a losing streak of being completely wrong, maybe the wrongest bitch in the game. Um, He also was a COVID skeptic. Mm -hmm. He um, was photographed partying um, during the height at a, at a club during the height of the COVID pandemic. He scoffed at uh, pro tennis measures to try to curb the spread of the virus at competitive events, and he also. Uh, announced via a Facebook Live feed back in April that he is anti-vaccine. What a dick. What an icon. And <laughs> you know the I- best part about his his p- boogieing down at the club is that the, the partying was happening at a tournament he put on to help people get... Like, he is... He is like the worst. He's the worst. He's a hardcore fuck that guy. Yeah, he is a hardcore fuck that guy. He's like the he's the Houston Astros of tennis. 
<laughs> They've, he's had some good years, but now we can be confident to cheer against him. Fuck that guy. Okay, do we have a toast? Oh, just a quick little toast for my boyfriend, Ed Markey. He won oh. his primary yesterday against Joe Kennedy. No shade on Joe Kennedy. It's fine. But Ed Markey, the reason I'm so excited that he won is that one... I don't know if you know this. Some people may not. He got his start in politics as an ice cream man uh, in Lexington, Massachusetts, where uh, you were not allowed to ring the bell. There's like a very arcane word for viscules or something like that. But you were not allowed to ring the bell and sell things to people, right? And so he gets pulled over. The cops bring him downtown and they're like, you can't do this anymore because we don't allow it in Lexington. So one, he went one more day down his route to tell all the parents that he wasn't allowed to sell ice cream anymore. And all the parents went to the next town meeting and guess what? That law was overturned. But one, that's adorable. But also he is someone who I think, you know, when we have like very complicated conversations about politics, I think that I so wanted Ed Markey to win because yeah, he is a old white man in his 70s, but he has like kept up with the times like mm -hmm. he's been part of the fights that have that have iterated over time he was one of the first people to work with AOC on the Green New Deal and he just has very progressive policies that we can all get behind and so I am glad that we are going to send him back to the United States Senate yeah I'm excited about that too it's you know that your your point about people who are over a certain age who have demonstrated a capacity for growth. I think that's so huge. I kind of hate blanket dismissals of elderly people, even though they do tend to vote in a way that is not great for me. Um, there are some that are really killing it. And Ed Markey is one of those people. So yes, he is. Toast to him. Okay, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're gonna talk more about teachers. Okay, we're back. Alyssa is still with me and joining us is a person who is not on this continent currently. She's an actor, director, and comedian, and I'm very jealous of the fact she's in another country. It's Kieran Deal. Hello, hello. Or I should probably not use my American accent anymore. Be like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> is your family like Cockney? There, I mean, literally everyone from Los Angeles will be like, will be like, oh, how's London? How's London? Just like the rest of England just doesn't exist. And it's pretty funny. Um, yeah, they're pretty cockney. They're like, they're all like in the middle being like, no, like top of the morning. They're all like that. <laughs> now they're leprechauns. They, they're all, they all have top hats, Alyssa. All of my family has top hats. It's crazy. That's Crazy. That sounds adorable, though. <laughs> Very charming. Uh, your American accent is a weapon over here. It's a weapon. So you're welcome anytime. If anyone else wants to flee, there's a couple other empty bedrooms. Uh, please come on down. How are you able to go over there? Do you have another passport? You, I think actually American citizens are allowed over here. It's that you just have to quarantine for two weeks. But yes, I, I am a dual citizen. But I, I, it doesn't okay. it doesn't matter. I came in on the American, so. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and did you, you, you did have to quarantine then? 
Two weeks. Yeah, they actually have you fill out the contact tracing here is pretty crazy. It's like they have you fill out a pretty comprehensive form about where you're staying, what the telephone number is, like really like they get a lot of details from you. And that's a big difference I've noticed even more than the masks between here and the U.S. is Hmm. the amount of contact tracing any place you go. It's like they take your number, they take a, you know, some way to contact you in case there's some sort of an outbreak there, which is interesting. So every time your phone rings or makes a sound, are you like, fuck, (laughs) maybe I got, oh yeah, no, nobody calls me. Okay. Well, if somebody does, that's probably a bad sign. (laughs) Sad, sad. So uh, Kieran, I'm super glad to have you for this part of the conversation. Um, Alyssa and I were talking about uh, the way that the United States is kind of haphazard and shitty and disorganized policy toward education and reopening has kind of left a lot of people in a lurch, you know, parents, teachers, university students, et cetera. Um, And we're going to kind of pivot right now and talk a little bit about, you know, the importance of teachers in our own lives and, you know, how that, how how they've kind of led us to who we are right now. So Karen, who was your favorite, like official teacher, like somebody who got paid to be a teacher, you called them Mrs. or Mr. or whatever. And why were they your favorite? So I actually think I'm really lucky that I had a ton of phenomenal teachers, like all throughout like public education. But when I think back on my favorite, it was this woman named uh, Mrs. Kirk uh, from second grade. uh, And she would call us her Kirk's kids, Kirk's kids. And I feel like part of the reason I might like her is just because she had a slogan. (laughs) So she sticks out the most. (laughs) But um, she was wonderful. She would give us like half a peanut Whenever you did something right, like half a roasted peanut and like a whole peanut, if you really, really like went crazy and did something good. And I always look back on that now and I was like, I would have sucked a dick for half a peanut, man. (laughs) (laughs) I've done anything for that peanut. It's crazy. Uh, Back back before there were peanut allergies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Kids in England are going back to school like literally today as well. And it's been all over the news. So you know, I think that globally people are definitely struggling with how to handle this and how to keep people safe, you know? Yeah. Alyssa, who was your favorite teacher growing up? My favorite teacher teacher was Ms. Hassey, who became Mrs. Culligan uh, while I had her. I think it was ninth and 10th grade social studies. And she's what I like to call immersive. And so even though there were things that made me very uncomfortable, she was also very forgiving and let us be very creative. So on the one hand, she made us watch The Killing Fields about Cambodia, the whole thing. Oh, my God. And yeah, I was like 15. And we watched that. And I think I tried to confab with one of my friends to confirm, but I'm pretty positive this was in fact correct. If we made honor roll, she took us to see Schindler's List. I'm not laughing because that movie's funny. I'm laughing because she really felt that like textbooks could only do so much. So uh, my best friend Kara and I, we did a joint final project, which was about um, the white man's burden and manifest destiny. And we played the Eagles song, The Last Resort, which if you go listen to it, it's amazing because that's what it's all about. And we played the whole song. And at the end, we were like, that was our project. We picked the song. (laughs) And she was kind of like, I give you credit. There ultimately had to be some written product to accompany it. But with the two of us, picture two little nerds in the front of the room, just standing quietly while their boombox played the Eagles. (laughs) But 
She fucked us up good. I mean, like, we definitely, for a bunch of white kids in upstate New York, like, we definitely got a greater sense of what was happening out in the world because of her. And she kind of seemed like she had a pole up her ass, but, I mean, she was the best. So, shouts out to Ms. Hassey slash Mrs. Culligan. Oh, man. I think, like... So like I've mentioned on the show before, I have a lot of teachers in my family. My mom was a high school English teacher. She's now a principal. My sister is a middle school ESL teacher. Um, My aunt Margie is a teacher. Uh, My uncle Jeff is a teacher. My uncle Joel also teaches. And my cousin Rachel teaches. So we're a big ass teaching family. And I always, you know, was raised to, to... I loved my teachers. Like, I couldn't even, like, narrow it down to how many, to to just one teacher that I, like, loved the most. But I think the teacher that made, like, blew my mind the most was um, I had a science teacher named Mr. Matson, And at my school, they had summer school, but it wasn't for if you failed. It was just, like, you got to take fun elective classes during the summer, and it only went from, like, nine until noon. Yeah. And when you're in fourth grade, you can, like, pick classes just like you're like a big kid and in fourth grade I took astronomy with Ah. Mr. Matson because I really was like interested I mean look being a rural kid I was bored a lot so I spent a lot of time looking at birds and the sky and so you know um and uh I took astronomy with him and I remember it was like mind-blowingly interesting I got obsessed with like black holes and like quasars and dark matter and stuff and on the last day of class, he showed us the Empire Strikes Back. It was the first Star Wars I had seen. <laughs> so it was like had, I had to get caught up a little bit. Um, and then I had him in seventh and eighth grade because my school was really small. And he was such an engaged teacher who was like so geeked out about science that it was impossible to not like find it extremely exciting and so the story does have kind of a a sad conclusion oh he was also my middle school basketball coach I mean small schools teachers pull like quadruple duty um I just I just adored him and he had such an impact on like I still love science now even though my job has nothing to do with it like I read science books I love like science documentaries I just he really had a, a big role in that. And I found out last year he he passed away, um, which is like, you know, when you start to get into your 30s, your teachers start hearing about your teachers passing away. And I wish I would have, like, sent him a note that was like, hey, Mr. Matson, like, I still think about your science class, like seventh grade science class. I still think about it to this day, um, which is like, you know, a cool thing that teachers can do because how many people get to affect hundreds of kids and they all remember them. Like, you remember being a Kirk's kid, Kieran. Oh, yeah. And, like, Alyssa, you still remember, like, the way the teachers made you feel? Vivid. Um, I think as we... Did you guys ever have a bad teacher? I, I probably didn't have... Like, some of my college professors, I think, were a little... Like, I definitely had, like, a writing professor when I was in uh, school, in college, where it was a little bit like, if you don't write like them then you're not good at this. You know, someone who wants you to be like them or there's like a particular way to be good at something that should be a little bit open-ended. So, you know, I think that was one of my one of my lower grades. Writing? Yeah, yeah. It was actually like, it was interesting. It was like an Indian professor. So it was like, mm-hmm. it was an interesting oh. thing. Yeah, yeah, where it's like, I wonder if there's a little bit of like, 
you know, like in the gener in that generation of people who had to come up, it's like you have to be like so tough, and then you're like tougher on people who like look like you, kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, which you know, because it's like, oh, you're gonna have to be better at this to to do anything with your life. So hmm. B minus or whatever, you know, <laughs> a Harvard B minus, which is basically like a regular school failing it's very hard to once you're in it's very hard to get bad grades there it's very difficult <laughs> well congratulations you achieved it thank you I'm thank proud you so of much you. proud thank of you, you. Okay. proud of you <laughs> thank you Alyssa. do you ever have a teacher that kind of didn't work for you yeah but i think that that teacher would probably say i didn't work for them either <laughs> <laughs> fair fair point i might have been a little bit of a dick about certain things and so i would like rally the other kids in the class to like boycott like not boycott something but kind of like refused to do something because it was bad and it might have been uh it might have been a chemistry class and what ended up being so funny is that I got like a a five out of five on the AP exam even though I had like nearly failed the entire course because he did teach me I was just a dick (laughs) oh man um I'm trying to think of like bad teachers that I had you know I don't want to like totally point fingers but there I had one teacher that was a math teacher who was just very very bad at teaching math and it's sort of um it was like I had love math was like one of my favorite subjects when I was little and then I hit this teacher and I just didn't like math anymore Mm. and it was one of those things where it's just like oh man I wish I could go back because like math is I mean what math can be fun if you like if you get it or if the person explaining to you it to you gets it it can be really fun but I ran into this teacher and I just was like no I'm gonna just focus on writing and talking so (laughs) maybe maybe that's why I'm here I excelled at maybe that's why I'm here today oh my god I got in trouble in kindergarten for talking too much me too really yeah I mean I got in trouble for talking most of elementary school and part of high school. I mean, it was always in a different way. It was like, oh, Alyssa really participates. And then sometimes it was like Alyssa could would be well served to maybe not pass notes in talking class. <laughs> you guys, you guys are, have never been an academic. Peas in a pod. Peas in a pod, you two. I, in kindergarten, I was... Uh, ah, in a pod. Get it? That was funny. Uh, you didn't even realize you did that oh Oh my god it's just a gift um (laughs) i I, in kindergarten i would get really stressed up by the color cutting and pasting like that's all we would do was like color cut and paste and i was like the pace of this is too crazy you want me to color cut and paste this is this is nuts guys you gotta slow it down i don't have time for all this like let's pick a lane but it turned out it's because i was cutting with the wrong hand I was using like oh, right-handed shit. scissors instead of left-handed scissors. And I was like, this is nuts, guys. Like, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> and you ended up at Harvard. Found it very <laughs> stressful. I found it very, very stressful. Still think about that. Still makes me sweat, the color cutting and face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I had a PE teacher that um, was like a sort of – he would like try to pretend that he was mean. Like he would – he wasn't a mean man, but he would try to – play a mean PE teacher and like like act like a real hard ass but he was actually super he was actually super nice I wasn't very good at um punting so we always had to do a football unit in 
PE and I couldn't punt the football. So I, I didn't do very well in PE one year because the teacher wasn't able to sec- successfully teach me how to punt. I punt all the time now. Seriously, that's not a joke. You're uh, when a I'm, play- no. when I'm big playing, big punter. That's what I. That's what I actually call you when I'm. I'm like big I'm getting, punt. Getting a, getting on the phone with Big P. Big punt. <laughs> Um, no, I do it because when I'm playing fetch with the dog, the he hands me a tennis ball that's just covered in grime, and I can just pick it up with like two tiny finger points and then punt it, and he will fetch it, and I don't have to get my hands all grimy. So it serves a purpose. Um, so I think, you know, we've all had formal teachers, like designated teachers, and then, you know, as we get older, we're not in school, and we have other people who serve as teachers. So who is the most important non-teacher who has taught you lessons. I thought about this and I had such an immediate reaction. It would be fake of me to not say it, but it's going to sound so fucking corny. But I think that my greatest teacher in life was Bernie Sanders. Like when I got the opportunity to like intern for him and like spend a lot of time with him and understand how he saw the world and like I just think it changed my worldview entirely and made me more empathetic and made me think about how so many issues or problems that I have, how they're so different for so many other people. And so, you know, he introduced me to socialism in 94. And I just, you know, ever since then, I've been like, people misunderstand socialism, I think. And I think that socialism is a lot more about empathy uh, for other people than it is, um, you know, some fucking dismantling of capitalism. So anyway, Bernie Sanders. Hmm. I was a good one. I was sure you were going to say Barack Obama, and then you surprised me. With that would have been so dumb of me. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't learn anything until I was like thirty. <laughs> there was this um, professor at the uh, American Repertory Theater, which is like a regional theater in Cambridge, and I learned a I learned a lot from him. I think like he is like this auteur, incredible director. He did like Madame Butterfly, like you know, the Los Angeles opera. And I think if he graded you based on each piece that you made, it would be like one piece would have been an A and then it would have been an F and you would have like gotten a D at the end of it. But he really kind of taught you to like, to take risks and, you know, the notion of like different, like how you could just use sound or how you could just use voice or how you could just use theme or tone over the course, you know, of a, of a piece and how, diversity should really be integrated into every single model. Like actually like the casting directors from Breaking Bad, they said that he was the first guy that they had worked with. And so that's really influenced the way that they saw the world too and how they decide to cast things uh, down the line. So um, yeah, this guy, Robert Woodruff was really, I think about, I think about him a lot. I think about the things I learned from his class a lot. And uh, since then I've really plateaued. (laughs) Yeah. Very dumb now. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because like we don't really I think as adults, we're not we don't really put ourselves in situations where we're like open to being taught, you know, we're like at work and we have a boss and that's like, uh, you know, even if it's a nice boss, there is a there's a level of like transaction that's like that's woven into that relationship. So it doesn't ever feel totally like a like a teaching relationship because there's you know, an exchange of money. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. But um, so I've had like bosses who I, I think taught me a lot for better or for worse. Like I had a, I had an editor early in my career who, when I didn't know any better, kind of pushed me to be a certain type of writer. And as I've gotten older, I've decided I don't want to be that type of 
writer 100% of the time. And, you know, it's it's sort of like, I think realizing in retrospect the flaws in what was asked of me have helped me grow and be more empathetic and kind to people who I'm in a position to give advice to or to help out. Mm. Um, But I think like in terms of somebody who was not in any type of boss or teacher, um, my, so my dad is one of six and his older brother, his oldest brother um, had Down syndrome. And so he lived with my grandparents um, his whole life. And uh, my grandparents were my neighbors when I was a kid. So I saw him like every day. uh, Uncle Stuart was his name. And uh, Stuart was, you know, he was older than my dad. But in terms of his mental capacity, you know, he sort of had like a kind of kid-like personality. Um, And I mean that in, in the full spectrum of how kids are. He was like sweet, funny Like, he would get excited about things. He loved to nerd out about things. But he also could be a real jerk in the way that, like, anybody can be a jerk. Because I think people with disabilities have, you know, I think we really kind of rob them of the ability to have a full spectrum of emotions because they do. Um, They're not angels, you know, (laughs) sent to teach people lessons. They're human beings. And he was, like, so... It was almost like having an extra brother, you know, um, that I saw almost all every day. And he was, like... He taught me a ton about comic books, uh, which the only knowledge I have about comic books is from him. He taught me a lot about patience um, because he was always coloring in a coloring book and he wouldn't let me color in it because he said I would scribble. And honestly, he was right. Um, But that did frustrate me. Um, He taught me a lot about being kind and trying not to be an asshole to people just because they're different just seeing the way that he went out into the world and the way that people would look at him or interact with him and how uncomfortable it made him it was like a really important lesson that I don't think you don't you don't really get taught that you know in in life unless you spend time around like people with a disability so outside of my parents and outside of like formal teachers he is the person who had the most impact on me. And he didn't like mean to, you know, he just kind of did. And uh, he passed away when I was 11. But, you know, I still think about him all the time. And he really was like cool and special. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, during COVID, it's I've been thinking about him just because people he would have had a ton of like risk factors for this disease. And people who have, um, you know, Down syndrome often have Um, conditions that go along with it that would make them susceptible to COVID. But I would encourage anybody listening, if you're thinking about doing any volunteering with, you know, disabled adults, like it's definitely something that once this is all over will be worth your time because you'll help out somebody and you'll probably also learn a lot. So that's my teacher's story. It's pretty good. That's a good one. Here's, here's the best. Um, Okay, let's let's talk really quickly um, about our experience as teachers. Alyssa, I know that you have been in charge of people. Do you think people see you as a teacher? Yes, probably in a Ms. Hassey, Mrs. Culligan type way. They're like, she threw me into the deep end of the pool. She did this, she did that. But I think they were all uh, the better for it, you know? I mean, it's like sometimes me explaining it to you, especially in like the jobs that I had as an adult, you're not going to learn by someone telling you what to do or by reading a binder. Like you just have to do it. And sometimes my principles were a little unorthodox when 
uh, Chase was one of my many deputies and he was being promoted and we were walking into the Oval Office and I turned around and I was like, oh, by the way, you're leading the meeting. I'm not saying anything. And he was very upset with me, but he did great. And then afterwards I was like, see, you fucking killed it. He's like, I hate you. But like he was never afraid again. So that's me. Deep end uh, of the pool. You can you, I was going to say, I'm picturing you like just tossing a baby into the pool and being like, you'll figure it out. <laughs> you know, that's how I learned how to swim. You got tossed into a pool as a baby? As a very small child. Well, I mean, we went to the ocean like because we were in New Jersey. So we go to Seaside Heights. No, but I was very young. I think I was like three years old when my mom had this like, former Olympian who was like teach my child how to swim and he like threw me into the deep end and look I learned how to do the butterfly I literally should have gone to the Olympics myself but you know <laughs> skill wasn't there Kieran have you ever found yourself in a position where you're a teacher to somebody whether or not it's a formal arrangement you know what's weird like when I when I was doing stand-up a couple years ago I was going to colleges so I go around to colleges. So that was really wild to like do colleges and then see like young people and like you kick it with people after you do the show. And I remember like seeing the hope, like they have like, they have that hope in their eyes. Like I think people like look at college kids and they're like, oh, it's so easy. But like you forget, it's so easy to forget how stressful it is when you're graduating. What am I going to do? What am I doing next? Like who am I going to be in this world? Like there's all these questions, like kids are dealing with debt. There's a lot of stress on kids. So I hope that I was like helpful to some of those kids and it was just like, fuck it. Like, do you, do you know what I mean? A little bit of like, you know, kind of go like nobody has answers and nobody has like what the path is, you know, but I remember seeing their, like the hope I used to have reflected in their eyes. And I was like, oh, it hurts. <laughs> ah, I can't look at that anymore. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you always gain it lives. something. You gain something from like, you know, kind of it's like, because when you're like really young, you have that optimism or, you know, and then when you're and then when you're older, hopefully you can impart some wisdom. Like even you were talking about your cousin, it made me think of my granddad. You know, it's like he was, mm -hmm. he's a refugee. Do you know what I mean? Who like had this crazy life and like still managed to like have like charm and optimism and humor and all of that stuff really permeates into, into how you navigate the world as a person too. And mm -hmm. it's funny because I like – those relationships are are teaching relationships as well. It's like I think of them as like family, but that's no. I I liked. I really like that you said that. That's teaching too. That's a a, a mm -hmm. version of teaching too. What's the most important thing that you learned from your granddad? When I think about it, it's like it's probably that like there are versions of genius just everywhere, and so much of it is about you know opportunity and how much. I, I mean, I really like when I think about like my family, I just think about like that entire generation really, really went to bat for like the idea of a grandkid. Do you know what I mean? And to like start you out in your life, like my entire, like all of my grandparents and stuff worked in factories. They were, they were working class people in, in Britain and they saved money and they, and they helped their, their kids buy houses and like all this stuff on like you know, minimum wage salaries, which is like, it's no small feat to do that if you are working in the line of a factory to like save money like that and like ride your bike and not get a car and like, and realizing that, you know, like I look at the kids I went to Harvard with and it's, it's like, there's a, there's a level of opportunity that's open to you at an, an institution like that. But 
when I look at the members of my family, it's like they were no less capable. It's just that that wasn't on the table. And I think it's really remembering that like there's, they're really like so much of it comes down to opportunity and like remember to look out for like the genius that exists in other people because like, like there is a, a resilience and a real intelligence mm-hmm. like all around you if you're paying attention. Mm-hmm. He sounds like he was really fucking rad, Kieran. Yeah, rad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> rad guy. Yeah, rad. I like that. <laughs> um, okay, well, this was a this is a great conversation. We probably could keep talking about all the awesome people who taught us stuff for a long time. But we have to take a break. And uh, when we come back, I feel petty. Okay, welcome back. We've reached the part of the show where we are almost done, but not done airing our petty grievances. It is, I feel petty. Um, Alyssa, do you want to start us off this week? Let's just say this. I really think (laughs) that the Biden campaign, shout out to everyone working there. You need to focus on merch. People want t-shirts and they want lawn signs and they want things to wear because they're proud. And it's just like the Trump shit is everywhere. And I think it's giving people like the wrong impression that Trump is like, you know, just killing it. And people just they want to say they're proud. They want to say Biden Harris. They want some cool weathered gray t-shirt with a retro Biden Harris sign that they can wear to the grocery store. Maybe with their old, you know, I've got a plan canvas tote that they bought last year. And they want to show everybody how complex they are and that they support you. So please, if you're listening or you've seen my emails, please get us some good merch to wear everywhere we go. And, you know, there's no excuse because I was reading this morning in Playbook, a newsletter that I hate read um that that biden and harris have raised a record amount of money in the last month they have been raising money like gangbusters biden is up like big time and we need this victory to be total and humiliating yes and let people show their enthusiasm i mean it's it's not insignificant that biden raised more in august than hillary and trump combined in 2016 wow now Get us some T-shirts we can buy and give you more money. Alt suggestions, <laughs> alt suggestions, just like the chattering teeth, like the chattering teeth that go like this, that just say Biden-Harris on them, Biden-Harris, because Joe's got the big teeth. Um, and you with the jam. Where's the jam, Biden-Harris, you know? We could auction it off, okay? It would get a lot of money. And uh, But even so, even so, I'll give Jam away for free if someone will give me a proper <laughs> ring spun shirt. I mean, and Ka- the thing is, like, Kamala Harris has inspired so much enthusiasm among groups that oftentimes feel underserved and unenthusiastic about having somebody, you know, that looks like them running. You know, she's the first South Asian woman ever to be nominated for VP. First black woman ever to be nominated for VP. She is very, very pretty, eminently memeable. <laughs> she makes like a good I would wear like a shirt of her like face looking tough. Like 
just, yes, I hard agree with you, Alyssa. Give me a sweatshirt that says Kamala Harris for the people. I will wear it every day. Thank you. Okay. For coming to my TED Talk. Uh, Kamala, Kamala is like Beth for in, in South Asians, for South Asians. It's like, it's a known name. You know, it's a, it's a very popular name. It's just like Cindy, uh-huh. Beth. I don't want to say Karen because of all the associations <laughs> now as a Karen. It's been very hard. Thank you so much for your support during this time, you know, but one of my big things is it's just like, I just sometimes will be in my house feeling sad and I'll just be like, Kamala, like, I'll just say it really Indian, you know, because I <laughs> <laughs> I think it's funny that it's like even when she's pronouncing it, she'll be like, it's Kamala. And I was like, it reminds me of when I was like, it's Kieran as opposed to Kieran, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> so I go real Indian. I go real Indian on her name. Yeah. Oh man. I, I I need I need merch of her. She's the she's great. Um, okay. So here's my I feel petty this week. Uh, I have to do this every week. So does Alyssa, so I guess I can't use this excuse anymore. Um I feel petty about restaurant names that are like sexually suggestive. Gross. I don't like, like, okay, there's a restaurant in LA called Egg Slut. Ew. Ew. No, like I don't, I don't need a place, like I don't need pink taco. I don't need that. Mm -hmm. Look, I'm eating. I do not want to be thinking about fucking right now. I am eating. Eating is not fucking time. It is eating time. I don't need a restaurant with a suggestive name. I don't need a restaurant with like double entendre names like in the menu for appetizers. I don't need anything. Just name it a food thing, not a sex thing. That is my pettiness this week. I feel it. It's kind of not dissimilar to how I feel about the eggplant emoji. Like, don't do that to eggplants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's true. I guess the peach emoji, that's a butt though. I think that's kind of cute. <laughs> I'm very fickle. <laughs> um, okay. Or inconsistent. We also have a cucumber. Why can't we use the cucumber? It's no. Too. That's, a, that's, another, that's another food-related sex thing, though. You got to be consistent with your emoji. If you have a policy for emoji, you should have the same policy for restaurants. It should be across the party line, Aaron. Wow. I fail to agree with you on this. Um, I, think, I, I think that it, there is nothing funnier than texting a man out of nowhere the... the <laughs> cucumber getting cut up emoji (laughs) (laughs) that's so bobbit funny uh yeah it is it is pretty funny um okay kieran what do you feel petty about this week i think i don't like the british i don't think i like them as a people (laughs) i think that like the british have like i think here's this is this is not a small thing my my grievance here is that the british their racism like they have a racism that they've really refined into this kind of like you know hundreds of years of just like are are you being paranoid? Is it gaslighting? Like, it's just really, I say it's like a fine wine. It's like, is it racism? You know, it's just like got all of these undernotes and you're just like, oh, chef's kiss. I'm not sure if you just don't like me or if it's like, if it's racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those, those old European countries have had so much time to perfect the things that they're good at. Like the Italians, <laughs> hard cheeses and also racism. Uh, the French... <laughs> Uh, bread and also racism. Uh, the Germans, the Germans, they're like, we're sorry, we're sorry. Sausages, no longer racism. Come in, immigrants, come in. We're really sorry. Sorry. We're really super sorry. Super sorry, you guys. We like immigrants. There's a woman who's running this country. Like, have a Wiener schnitzel. Angela is so good at, at just tossing shade Donald Trump's way, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah, she's good. She's very good. She's very good. She's so shady. Love it. Love it. Um, 
Okay, that's what we feel petty about this week. Um, and I think that's all the time we have for today's show. Kieran, thank you so much for, I feel like there's an invisible string connecting us across the entire continent of North America and the Atlantic Ocean and it's ending where you are. And it's so good to see you. Um, and it's so weird that it's evening there. I know. We both, it, I feel like we both have a little tin cup and that's what's connecting the strings and we're talking uh-huh. through that. Right. It's a soup can yeah. that I'm talking into. There's a little a, delay. A th- There's an eight hour delay, <laughs> but it's still great. Um, Alyssa, as always, thank you for hanging out and thanks to all of you for listening. There will be more hysteria next week. Hysteria is a production of Crooked Media. Caroline Rustin is our producer. Our editor is Sarah Barrett and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to Brian Semmel and Juliet Beckstrand for production support every week. Hey.